In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, Lord, we thank you for giving us this time. We thank you for letting the rain stop for a little while to, to get us here without being drenched. But we need the rain, so we thank you for that. We thank you for many graces and blessings, particularly the whole idea of church and understanding what church is and what the early founding fathers, you might say, the apostles, including St. Paul, and all of the efforts that went into beginning. But most of all, we thank you for the Holy Spirit's action and interventions at many times and points in the early days. Not only then, but today, the Holy Spirit still governs and guides us. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name. So as we come to the end of this session, uh, I'd like to I'd like to not only uh, get you to understand and see the whole idea of how the early church was brought together starting with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, uh, then Pentecost Sunday, the first Pentecost Sunday, uh, and then the workings of the Spirit for the next 40 years or so. And as I say 40 years, because uh, the whole work of Paul and the apostles seemed to come to fruition, you might say, with the uh, overrun of Jerusalem and Israel by the Romans in the year 70 AD when the temple was destroyed. Uh, most people do not understand the significance of that time period, and that's one thing that we need to uh, really understand. The Jewish people for almost 500 years from the time of the return of the exiles from Babylon uh, to Israel and the restoration of the temple that Solomon built, uh, which was done by Nehemiah primarily, and then it was rebuilt by Herod the Great with the help of uh, Caesar Augustus uh, in the year 43 B.C. The temple was the seat of Judaism. The Holy of Holies, which was the main part of the temple uh, and the inner workings of the temple, was in their minds the seat of God. Unfortunately, they sort of misinterpreted that whole idea of the seat of God, thinking that that is where God was, but he wasn't anywhere else. He wasn't outside the walls of the temple, uh, and therefore what they did outside the walls of the temple, um, God didn't see. They would had a very poor understanding of the powers and the the person of God. 
And so when the temple was destroyed, it took the whole idea of God away from the Jewish people. And it was sort of God's way of saying, enough is enough. I've gone through this three different times. From the time of the release of the Israelites from Egypt, from the time of the Assyrian overrun of the northern part of Israel, and from the time of the Babylonian exile of the southern part of Israel or Judah. And each time, you people, you Jewish people, resolve to come back and be faithful. And yet, within a short period of time, you turn back to your evil ways and worship foreign gods. And now, even when I, and I'm speaking sort of in the person of God, even when I present to you my son, and he preaches to you all that I have told him and given him, and you still reject him for your stupid reasons, such as where did he come from, and who is he, and your whole idea of being released from the Romans or under the jurisdiction and rule of the Romans, rather than returning to me, your Lord and your God, enough is enough. And so the whole idea of the first covenant with the Jewish people was withdrawn, and that was then renewed through Jesus Christ and the followers of Christ. And that is really what we are seeing here in this 40-year period between the ascension of, of Christ and the destruction of the temple. This whole idea of Christianity coming in and developing through the power of the Holy Spirit and the workings of the apostles, including Paul and the others, and how God has now opened the door to the Christians or those who accept the teachings of Christ, and more specifically, the beginnings of the Catholic Church. Catholic Church is really the mother church, the beginning of Christianity stemming right from uh, St. Peter all the way down to now the current new Pope, uh, Francis I. And by the way, he was named after me. That's my middle name. But it's important really for you to see that in order to truly appreciate <clears throat> what God has given us. And that is the church in itself. Not necessarily the human elements of the church, although it is we, the people, that make up the church. Unfortunately, the church is both, well, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, is both divine and human in the same way that Jesus was divine and human. The, divinity, the divine part, of course, 
is the infallibility of the church when speaking in the subjects, speaking of the subjects of faith and morals. But faith and morals covers most of what we believe and what we do. And yet people try to do the same thing that the Jewish people did. Put God in a box and worship him on Sunday, but the rest of the week uh, they kind of go their own way and do their own thing. Even many Catholics do that, unfortunately. Uh, And how sad it is. Because, remember, one of the greatest virtues is obedience to God. That is what the Jewish people were punished for lack of, obedience to God. And we, if we sort of remake the church in our image, and our desires and purposes, then we are doing the same thing. And that you can't do. And God, unfortunately for us, will hold us, hold it against us. But let's get into the last part of the book of the Acts of the Apostles so that we can see some of the problems that Paul faced right from the end of his third journey um, right up to the end of his life. Let's kind of set the scene. After he finished his last journey, and he was warned by many of the disciples in various ways not to return to Jerusalem, he felt that they were wrong, and he was right. And whether or not that was the case, that's the way it worked. And so he did return to Jerusalem, only to really be criticized not only by those people who rejected Christ, but even those who came over to Christianity but felt that in many ways he was a traitor because he did not continue to follow the Jewish ways. Uh, Remember at that particular time, Judaism and Christianity had not fully split. But as you can see, and I'm sure that you understand, that because of the exclusivity of the Jewish faith and the all-inclusive nature of Christianity, the two could never have stayed together. It would have been great. This is what God would have wanted. But unfortunately... Uh, the two just never could be combined. Let's go uh, beginning at the top of page 98 with Paul and James in Jerusalem. We've covered a little of this last week. I'd like to just go back over it uh, so that we can see how um, some of these other things came to be. After these days, we, that is, Paul and Luke and perhaps others, made preparations for our journey. They went up to Jerusalem. See, unfortunately, 
he mixes his personal pronouns, we and they, um, went up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea came along to lead us to the house of Massus, a Cypriot, a disciple of long standing with whom we were to stay. When we reached Jerusalem, the brothers welcomed us warmly. The next day, Paul accompanied us on a visit to James. Again, as I've said before, James was sort of the local bishop at that time because many of the other apostles had already left Israel and went off into various parts of the Roman Empire to to do the preaching that they were commanded to do by by Christ himself, as it says in the end of uh, Matthew's Gospel. This is James, the brother of John. The other James went off into the area of Spain. You've probably heard of the great uh, shrine at Compostello in in northern Spain. Uh, That is where the other James went uh, and is buried there now. He greeted them and proceeded to tell them in detail what God had accomplished among the Gentiles through his ministry. This is Paul now. They praised God when they heard it, but said to him, Brother, you see how many thousands of believers there are from among the Jews, and they are all zealous observers of the law. See, they were believers, but also observers of the Jewish law. They have been informed that you are teaching all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to abandon Moses and that you are telling them not to circumcise their children or to observe their customary practices. What is to be done? They will surely hear that you have arrived and so do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. These men and... Take these men and purify yourselves with them and pay their expenses that they may have their heads shaved. In this way, everyone will know that there is nothing to the reports that have been given about you, but you yourself live in observance of the law. Now, there again, Paul is put into sort of um, a very compromising position because he is saying in one hand that the Jewish converts to Christianity do not have to observe the law. On the other hand, uh, he's being asked to do some of the things that um, sort of broadcast or advertise that he is uh, a strict observance of the law. Remember, the shaving of the head is part of the act of the Nazarites which we talked about a couple weeks ago. As far as the Gentiles who have come to believe, we sent them our decision that they abstain from meat sacrificed to idols and from blood and from meat of strangled animals and from unlawful marriage. That was the content of the letter sent out as we discussed in chapter 15. Okay. So Paul took the men, and on the next day, after purifying himself together, 
uh, with them entered the temple to give notice of the day when the purification would be completed and the offering made for each of them. When the seven days were nearly completed, the Jews from the province of Asia noticed him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd, and laid hands on him, shouting, Fellow Israelites! And we went on, and I want to just set that as the scene of what we are up against, okay? Uh, You remember... um, Well, let's drop back for a minute here. At the bottom of page 98, there's some important uh, points being made by uh, the author of this book here. It says, uh, the reference in verse 25 to the policy regarding Gentile converts expressed in the apostolic decree of the Jerusalem Council, again, chapter 15, strikes an odd note here. Paul, after all, played a major part in the meeting and indeed helped promulgate its policy regarding Gentile converts. But the notice serves to remind the reader that the present issue, Paul's attitude toward Jewish observance of the law, is something other than what is expected of Gentile Christians. Now, we have what is really been a thorn on the side of Paul's teaching because he is saying one thing to Jewish converts and another one to Gentile converts. And that creates a real problem. Okay. Going on to the next page, Paul, given Paul's own language about dying to the law in Galatians, some commentators find Luke's portrayal here of Paul's compromise implausible. Yet it can be argued that Paul is acting in a way wholly consistent with a policy he articulates in 1 Corinthians, which is, quote, Although I am free to re- in regard to all, I have made myself a slave to all so as to win over as many as possible. To the Jews I became like a Jew to win over Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law. And though I myself am not under the law, to win over those under the law. Unfortunately, when you study Paul, you really have to kind of have a pencil and paper and mark down who he's talking to and then is he referring to himself and then back again because it is very difficult. And to make matters worse, um, one sentence can be that long, you know. I'm going drop down a little bit. Sadly, in the end, the strategy fails, for he cannot be all things to all people. No one can. For in the event that followed, nothing indicates that Paul's Jerusalem relief fund was accepted, and no one in the Jerusalem Christian community comes to his rescue in the confrontation that continues to unfold. The Jerusalem church, so robustly present in the early chapters of Acts and now grown to many thousands, disappears from view during the final seven chapters. Well, part of that is because most of the Christians had left that area because 
of the coming persecutions. This was a command of Christ himself in uh, chapter 25 of the book, uh, the Gospel of Matthew. Let's go on. Remember now, he gets into this confrontation between the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the Pharisees rather, and finally the prefect comes to sort of uh, rescue him. All right? And then he uh, is spirited away that night uh, and taken to Caesarea. All right, that sort of sets the scene of what we're experiencing. And so now let's pick it up in, um, in Caesarea after he gets there. Okay. Going over to uh, 107, chapter 24. When he gets there, you know, there's the sort of the changing of the guards. You have Felix, who was there for a long time, and then he is succeeded by Festus. Uh, and because of that, Felix just didn't want to do anything. He thought he'd wait. Sounds like our modern-day politicians, you know. When they come to the end of their term, they're not going to do anything to upset the apple cart, so they wait till after the new people come in. Okay, and that's exactly what we have here. Okay. It says, five days later, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and, advocate, and an advocate, a certain uh, Tertullus, and they presented formal charges against Paul to the governor. When he was called, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since we have attained much peace through you. Now, he's appealing, appealing to Felix here in this case. <laughs> um, through you and reforms have been accomplished in this nation through your provident care. He's really buttering up, you know, the Roman uh, procurator here. We acknowledge this in every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix, with all gratitude. But in order not to detain you further, I ask you to give us a brief hearing with your customary graciousness. He found this man, we found this man to be a pest. He creates dissension among Jews all over the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazareans. He even tried to desecrate our temple. Now, Desecrate the temple. In this case, you desecrate the temple by bringing in Jews into the inner part of the temple. I, I'm sorry, the, the Gentiles. Okay. Um, and that is, to them, a desecration of the temple. Okay. If you examine him, you will be able to learn from him for yourself about everything of which we are accusing him. The Jews also joined in the attack and asserted that these things were so. Then the governor motioned to him to speak, and Paul replied, I know that you have been a judge over this nation for many years. Well, Felix only reigned for seven years. 
Well, I guess that could be many at that time in life, okay? Um, so I am pleased to make my defense before you. As you can verify, not more than 12 days have passed since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. Neither in the temple, nor in the synagogues, nor anywhere in the city did you find me arguing with anyone or instigating a riot among the people. Nor can they prove to you the accusations they are now making against me. But this I do admit to you, that according to the way, the way that is the Christian way, uh, which they call a sect. I worship the God of our ancestors, and I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and written in the prophets. I have the same hope in God as they themselves have, that there be a resurrection of the righteous and unrighteous. Because of this, I always strive to keep my conscience clear before God and man. For many years, <coughs> excuse me, for many years, I came to bring alms for my nation and offerings. While I was so engaged, they found me after my purification in the temple without a crowd or disturbance. But some Jews from the province of Asia who were, who should be here before you to make whatever accusations they might have against me, or let these men themselves state what crime they discovered when I stood before the Sanhedrin, unless it was my one outcry as I stood among them that I am on trial before you today for the resurrection of the dead. See, he's putting that uh, little <coughs> sore spot in there. Excuse me. Then Felix, who was accurately informed about the way, postponed the trial, saying, When Lysias, the commander, comes down, I shall decide your case. He gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty that he should not prevent any of his friends from caring for his needs. Okay. In some ways, that sort of briefly, very briefly, summarizes part of Paul's whole idea, the whole complex of, of serving God, but yet serving Christ in a way of trying to prevent or to convince the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. It didn't work. Okay. So several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He had Paul summon and listen to him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. But as he spoke about righteousness and self-restraint and the coming judgment, Felix became frightened and said, You may go for now. When I find an opportunity, I shall summon you again. At the, time, at the same time, he hoped that a bribe could be offered him by Paul, and so he sent for him very often and conversed with him. Two years later passed, and Felix was succeeded by uh, Porcius Festus, wishing to ingratiate himself, ingratiate himself with the Jews. Felix left Paul in prison. But two years later, 
Now, that sounds like punishment in itself. Obviously, these prisons uh, at that time were certainly not like the ones we have today, where some of them are almost like uh, resorts. But it was a time that, or during which Paul spent a lot of time writing the letters that we have today. Okay. The two years in Caesarea was a time of many letters being written. The letters to the Philippians is the one that really comes to mind uh, because it is probably the letter of Paul that reflects his humility. Um, when Paul started out, and if you read all of the letters sort of in the order in which they were written, not in the order in which you find them in the book, but in the order in which they were written, you'll see he starts out very brash, uh, bold, uh, and in some ways almost insulting, uh, because he calls, for example, the Romans stupid and foolish, etc., etc. Not a way to ingratiate yourself to anyone. But as he goes through this two-year time in Caesarea and then again in Rome for another couple of years, uh, he really mellows. And the whole concept of humility within Christianity comes out in the letter to the Philippians. Three days after his arrival in the province, Festus, now who succeeds Felix, went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem, where the chief priests and Jewish leaders presented him uh, their formal charges against Paul. They asked him as a favor to have him sent to Jerusalem, for they were plotting to kill him along the way. Festus replied that Paul was being held in custody in Caesarea and that he himself would be returning there shortly. He said, let your authorities come down with me and if this man has done something improper, let them accuse him. After spending no more than eight or ten days with them, he went down to Caesarea and on the following day took his seat on the tribunal and ordered that Paul be brought in. When he appeared, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem surrounded him and brought many serious charges against him, which they were unable to prove. In defending himself, Paul said, I have committed no crime, either against the Jewish law or against the temple or against Caesar. Then Festus, wishing to ingratiate himself, with the Jews, said to Paul in reply, Are you willing to go to Jerusalem and there stand trial before me on these charges? Paul answered, I am standing before the the tribunal of Caesar. This is where I should be tried. I have committed no crime against the Jews, as you very well know. If I have committed a crime or done anything deserving death, I do not speak, I do not seek to escape the death penalty. But if there is no substance to the charges that they are bringing against me, 
then no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Now, which Caesar is this? Now, Nero. This is, would be Nero. And of course, Nero had no love for Christians. He had no love for anybody, for that matter. <clears throat> A few days had passed, and King Agrippa and his wife Bernice arrived in Caesarea on a visit to Festus. Since they spent several days there, Festus referred Paul's case to the king, saying, There is a man here left in custody by Felix. When I was in Jerusalem, the chief priest and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him and demanded his condemnation. I answered them that, it was not Roman practice to hand over an accused person before he had faced his accusers. Aha, due process of law. And had the opportunity to defend himself against their charge. So, when they came together here, I made no delay. The next day I took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought in. His accusers stood around him, but did not charge him with any of the crimes I had suspected. Instead, they had some issues with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who had died, but who Paul claimed was alive. Since I was at a loss how to investigate this controversy, I asked if he were willing to go to Jerusalem and there stand trial on these charges. And when Paul appealed that... <clears throat> he be held in custody for the emperor's decision, I ordered him held until I could send him to Caesar. Grippa said to Hephaestus, I too should like to hear this man. He replied, Tomorrow you will hear him. The next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great ceremony and entered the audience hall in the company of uh, cohort commanders and the prominent men of the city, and by command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all you here present with us, look at this man, about whom the whole Jewish populace petitioned me here and in Jerusalem, clamoring that he should live no longer. I found, however, that he had done nothing deserving death. And so when he appealed to the emperor, I decided to send him, but I have nothing definite to write about him to our sovereign, and therefore I have brought him before all of you, and particularly before you, King Agrippa, so that I may have something to write as a result of these investigations. For if it seems senseless to me to send up a prisoner without indicating the charges against him, doesn't this sound a little familiar like Jesus before Pontius Pilate, the same kind of thing. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you may now speak on your own behalf. So Paul stretched out his hand and began his defense. I count myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I am to defend myself before you today against all the charges made against me by the Jews especially since you are in, an expert in all the Jewish customs and controversies, 
And therefore, I beg you to listen patiently. My manner of living from my youth, a life spent from the beginning among my people and in Jerusalem, all the Jews know. They have known about me from the start. If they are willing to testify that I have lived my life as a Pharisee, the strictest party of our religion, but now I am standing trial before because of my hope in the promise made by God to our ancestors. Our twelve tribes hope to attain to that promise as they fervently worship God day and night. And on account of this hope, I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought unbelievable among you that God raises the dead? I myself once thought that I had to do many things against the name of Jesus the Nazarene. And I did so in Jerusalem. I imprisoned many of the holy ones with the authorization I received from the chief priests. And when they were to be put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many times in synagogue after synagogue, I punished them in an attempt to force them to blaspheme. I so enraged against them that I pursued them even to foreign cities. On one such occasion, I was traveling to Damascus with the authorization and commission of the chief priests. At midday, along the way, I saw, O king, a light from the sky, brighter than the sun, shining around me and my traveling companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Hebrew, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to... it is hard for you to kick against the goat. And I said, Who are you, sir? And the Lord replied, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Get up now and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness of what you have seen of me and what you will be shown. I shall deliver you from this people and from the Gentiles to whom I send you to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may obtain forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who have been consecrated by faith in me. So he is again repeating virtually his whole uh, Christian side of life. And so King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. On the contrary, first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout the whole country of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, I preached the need to repent and turn to God and to do works, giving evidence of repentance. That is why the Jews seized me and when, when I was in the temple and tried to kill me. But I have enjoyed God's help to this very day. And so I stand here testifying to the small and the great alike, saying nothing different from the prophets and Moses foretold, that the Messiah must suffer, that in the first, as the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to the people, to our people and to the Gentiles. While Paul was so speaking, In his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, 
You are mad, Paul. Much learning is driving you mad. But Paul replied, I am not mad, most excellent Festus. I am speaking words of truth and reason. The king knows about these matters, and to him I speak boldly, for I cannot believe that any of this has escaped his notice. This was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. Then Agrippa said to Paul, remember Agrippa is the Jewish king. You will soon persuade me to play the Christian. Paul replied, I would pray to God that sooner or later not only you, but all who listen to me today might become as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and with him the governor and Bernice, and the others who sat with them. And after they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing at all that deserves death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man should have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Uh, The last point is very important. This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. And once you make that appeal, it uh, becomes binding. Chapter 27 is uh, rather important, but I'm going to skip that. It reads like uh, a movie script, you might say, and um, it's a very interesting. It must have taken roughly six months to sail from Caesarea to Rome because they got shipwrecked on Malta and spent the winter there. Um, and remember, none of these were pleasure cruises of any kind. <clears throat> so, let's go over to uh, Jim. Yes, yes. Yes, yes. In fact, uh, this book mentions that a little earlier, that that is the only way. People had to go to a seaport and just wait for a ship that was going in the direction that they wanted to go. And they took whatever was available. Yeah. No advance tickets or reservations. If we just read uh, chapter 28 in the beginning of it, uh, winter in Malta. Now, I've been to Malta two or three times uh, for various reasons. It's a, a very nice little place, but the weather is not that great because it sits right in the middle of the Mediterranean and it gets the cross currents from every direction. Interesting little town. It is really um, a mixed, (laughs) using Jim's term, it's a mixed bag of cultures. Uh, Arab, Greek, 
and Italian or Roman uh, because they all, uh, let's say, governed or claimed Malta as their possession at one period of time. And there are ruins uh, reflecting the three different cultures there. Um, chapter 28. Once we had reached safety, we learned that the island was called Malta. The natives showing us extraordinary hospitality. They lit a fire and welcomed all of us because it had begun to rain and was cold. Paul had gathered a bundle of brushwood and was putting it on the fire when a viper, escaping from the heat, fastened on his hand. And when the natives saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to one another, This man must certainly be a murderer, though he escaped the sea. Justice has not let him remain alive. But he shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no harm. Again, the Holy Spirit is working there. There was, uh, there were expecting him to swell up and suddenly to fall down dead. But after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and began to say that he was a god. In the vicinity of that place were lands belonging to a name, uh, a man named Publius, the chief of the island. He welcomed us and received us cordially as his guests. Now us, of course, this is implying that Luke is there with him. He welcomed us and, and received us accordingly as his guests for three days. So, you know, here is Paul going to Rome as a prisoner, and yet he's a guest in the house of the, the chief of the island. Um, a little strange, but that's what it is. It so happened that the father of Publius was a sick with a fever and dysentery. Paul visited him and after praying laid his hands on him and healed him. After this had taken place, the rest of the sick on the island came to Paul and were cured. Uh, they paid us great honor and when he eventually set sail, they brought us the provisions we needed. Three months later, we set sail on a ship that had wintered at the island. It was an Alexandrian ship with uh, the, whatever you call this, uh, as its figurehead. We put, we put in at Syracuse and stayed there three days. Syracuse now is where? On Sicily. Okay. So you know there's no straight line from Malta to Rome. They go by wherever the ship is going for uh, business purposes. We put in at Syracuse and stayed there three days. And from there, we sailed around the coast and arrived at Regium. After a day, a south wind came up. In two days, we, we reached Petu Petulio. Well, whatever. There uh, we found some brothers and were urged to stay with them for seven days and thus came to Rome. The brothers from there, that is Rome, heard about us and came as far as the Forum of, uh, Forum of Appius, 
and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul gave thanks to God and took courage. When he entered Rome, Paul was uh, allowed to live by himself with a soldier who was guarding him. Three days later, he called together the leaders of the Jews. When they had gathered, he said to them, My brothers, although I had done nothing against our people or our ancestral customs, I am handed over to the Romans as a prisoner from Jerusalem. After trying my case, the Romans wanted to release me because they found nothing against me deserving the death penalty. But when the Jews objected, I was obliged to appeal to appeal to Caesar, even though I had no accusation to make um, in my own, <clears throat> even though I had no accusation to make against my own nation. This is the reason, then, I have requested to see you and to speak with you, for it is on account of the hope of Israel that I wear these chains. They answered him, We have received no letters from Judea, about you, or has any of the brothers arrived with damaging report or rumor about you? But we should like to hear you present your views, for we know that this sect is denounced everywhere. And so they arranged the day with him and came to the lodgings, to his lodgings in great numbers, from early morning until evening. He expounded his position to them, bearing witness to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and the prophets. Some were convinced by what he had said, while others did not believe. Without reaching any agreement among themselves, they began to leave then. Paul made one final statement. Well, did the Holy Spirit speak to your ancestors through the prophet Isaiah, saying, Go to this people and say, You shall indeed hear, but not understand. You shall indeed look, but never see. Gross is the heart of this people. They will not hear with their eyes, with their ears. They have closed their eyes, for they may not see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and be converted. And I healed them. Let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. He remained for two full years in his lodgings. He received all who came to him, and with the complete assurance and without hindrance, he proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. Dropping down to the bottom of page 124. It says, Does this final word of Paul mean that the door is closed to further mission to Israel? No more than the presence of Isaiah chapter 6 verses 9 and 10 in the original commission of Isaiah to of Jerusalem indicated that he had no mission to his people. Believed by the 60 chapters that follow in the scroll of Isaiah, 
The rejection of the gospel by the majority of historical Israel is, for Luke, a fact to be faced. The rejection of the gospel by the majority of the historical Israel, for Luke, is a fact to be faced. It's interesting that in Jerusalem there is a museum called the Museum of the Book. It contains most of, but not necessarily all, it contains most of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And it's interesting, of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were found in 1947, or I should say beginning in 1947, because it was over a, a period of about three years that most of these were found, none of them contained anything from the New Testament, because obviously they date back prior to the time of Christ. But of all of the Old Testament scriptures that were among the Dead Sea Scrolls, because there were other writings as well, the only one of the complete books of the Old Testament that is there is the book of Isaiah. The longest of the prophets. And it is the one that the Jewish people most ignore. As it says right here. Continue on. In ending with this episode, Paul has helped his largely Gentile readers understand A, their relationship to historical Israel, B, the majority of Israel's rejection of its Messiah, C, how the Gentiles have become beneficiaries of Israel's vocation to be a light to the nations. That last one is the most important. The Gentiles have become beneficiaries of Israel's vocation to be a light to the nations. As I've said all throughout this course, the whole, the whole purpose of Israel, God himself forming the nation of Israel beginning with Abraham, was to take the message that God was going to give mankind through these people out to all the other nations. Unfortunately, they did not, they, the Jewish people, did not see themselves as being a messenger to other nations. They looked upon themselves as being the chosen or the favored people, and therefore they became exclusive to themselves, which was just the opposite of what God wanted. And therefore, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God reaffirmed his commitment to mankind through Christ and through his followers and have set the Jewish people back because they still look upon themselves as an exclusive nation. Inclusive, exclusive nation, yes. Um, how unfortunate that is. But 
there is a danger if we, as Christians, ignore that role. Because the church must open itself to all mankind. Not embedding itself in the ways of man, but constantly reminding itself that it is a messenger of God through Jesus Christ to all mankind. And we must reflect that. That is the whole idea of what Paul is trying to get across. And unfortunately, as it says here, he tried to be all things to all people, and it didn't work. Um, And I don't think any one human being can be all things to all people. It doesn't work. You have to take sides, because human nature is such that uh, we are given as far as... uh, creation is concerned, we are given the the intellect to make choices. And unfortunately, many people will make choices that are solely intended for their own uh, comfort or pleasure or whatever. And unfortunately, uh, you can't always do that. Our mission, our role in God's plan of salvation is not always a comfortable one. We have to step out and sometimes really step on other people's toes uh, to fulfill what God wants of us. That is what the church is all about. And that is what this book is all about. Any questions? Yes, Karen. Yeah. And if he's saying that they were going to let me go, but the Jews were objecting, how strong is that objection? What, what weight does that objection carry? Is my question making sense? Um, frankly, no. Oh, it sounds <laughs> like he, they were going to let him go. Okay, when he had his. Yeah, yeah. When he was speaking about, I did nothing, I, you know, I'm this person, I've done nothing wrong. They said, yes, you have done nothing wrong. Okay, but then it says here, after trying my case, the Romans wanted to release me because they found nothing against my deserving of death sentence. Okay, so, but then he says, so it seems to me at that point he could have been released. That's true, but he was then facing death anyways by the Jews because he knew, remember, his sister had somehow gotten the message to him. Okay, so that's why he appealed to see That's right. Okay, because the Jews would have put him to death anyways. That's right, yeah. Okay. And what he wanted to do is 
if he was going to die, he wanted to die at the hand of the Romans, not the Jews. Yeah. Is that is that kind of clear? Yeah. Okay. Yes, Gene? We don't know. That's been the question. Uh, Gene's point is, why does Luke not mention Paul's death or Peter's death? And it's often thought, well, maybe Luke wanted to continue and write another book about the continuance of Christianity and its spread throughout the world. But we have no way of knowing because it seems to end rather cold um, and and leaves something hanging. There is another theory and there's lots of theories regarding of why does, uh, do these two important events are they not mentioned. There is a theory that perhaps by mentioning Paul's death that it would take away from the importance of the points that the writer, Luke, is trying to make of the the importance of the Holy Spirit uh, spreading Christianity uh, throughout all of the Roman Empire at that time. And if they talked about Paul's death, it sort of would have drawn attention to that incident rather than leaving and hanging. That's kind of vague, I know, uh, but it is one of the theories that is often offered as to why this uh, seems to end abruptly. Yeah. We know that Paul and Peter were both uh, executed at the hands of the Romans during the reign of Nero um, in roughly the same time. We, we figure somewhere around uh, 64 to 67 AD. Yeah. We're not quite certain. Uh, a most likely time would be 66 AD when the war between the Romans and the Jews really heated up and eventually resulted in the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD. Three and a half years. Incidentally, three and a half years is, is mentioned and prophesied uh, in the book of Daniel as being the time period that the Jewish people would really have to suffer more than they did at the hands of the uh, Greeks back in the 6th century uh, B.C. Okay. Any other questions? Uh, what I'd like to talk about now uh, is your idea of church. Your idea of what is church. Now, most people will say, well, we are the church. Obviously, we are the church. We're talking not only about people. We're not talking about build, uh, bricks and mortar. We're not talking about buildings. We're talking about the concept of church. Obviously, to have a movement or a concept of this, you need people to 
carry it out. That's not really what I'm trying to get across. I'm trying to get across as to what is church for you? Yes. Okay. My husband was in the military and we moved around a lot. Of course, I started out in different places and everything. And when, wherever we were, I always felt when I was in the church, I was at home. And the people were my family and we all had similar values. And it was just a very welcoming place that we all believed the same thing. Jesus was our main focus and um, it was home. Good. Okay. The church is home. Jim? Like her, uh, home. He had the opportunity to uh, be amongst a lot of other faiths in some missionary work that we did. And after being gone for a month at a time, as we are maybe two months at a time, we come home to St. Clair's and we realize how much we miss our parish family. That's church to me. Good. Okay. All right. Anyone else? No one else? Okay. Jane? The church is the living store of salvation. Without it, we cannot return to the Father. Very good. Okay. The main source of salvation, without it, we cannot return to the Father. That's getting down into the theological point of church. And that's you know, that's not to say one is more accurate than the other. It is your own personal feelings, and that's what we're trying to get out. Okay? Anyone else? Betty? I think it's, it's definitely um, what both people are. The first thing I said is the community that worships together and tries to follow um, the way of Jesus as best they can, despite many differences between us. Mm-hmm. We're not always in unison, but we certainly try to follow God's way. Good. Okay. I see this role as not being Catholic, because when we say we believe in one holy Catholic, that little C which makes us all Catholic. So I know the Presbyterians and even the Evangelicals say, I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. So for me, personally, I believe that an evangelical is just as much a Christian who relies on Christ's blood and sacrifice as any any person in this church. Okay. All right. Everybody's entitled to their own opinions. All right. I always feel if they don't agree with me, they're probably wrong. You'll go straight to hell. (laughs) Yes, ma'am. Well, I think it's a growth experience. I think as a child, um, I learned Catholicism, my example, because my parents were Catholic. And my father was a great teacher just by his example, you know, going to church and learning um, the religion through um, going to the sisters and then you kind of branch, branch out as you get older and learn about other religions and hear other people and their influence. But are you going to stay with what you 
a growing experience through my family and through the church. And then as my parents pass on, I see them still with me. And it, the faith becomes even more clear that it's beyond just on earth. Good. All right. Faith and church should be a growth experience where it never, growing never ends. Yeah. All right. I just believe, where would we go if we didn't have church? Well, that's, that's what Christ where said. Where do we turn to? That's, that's what Christ Yeah. What's that? <laughs> Jennifer? Uh, well, for me, because I a convert from many, many years ago, um, the journey that God led me on to become Catholic, I think, has also been the vehicle, as we raised our family in the church and all, that um, he has chosen to increase my faith and to uh, bless us because of that obedience. So... No, to me, it's just all tied in. It's like, you know, the gift of salvation and belonging and family and, and just the blessings that come from that. Right. Can't even be compared to anything. Right. Um, right. Very good. Thank you. Um, I've put together here something that... Oh, Doris? I was going to say, too, I think of it as the service we give to others... Um, and as witnesses to the world, you know, I see that as church too, the, mm-hmm. the individuals, mm-hmm. uh, service to others, helping the poor, needy, whatever else, and witnessing to others. Amen. Yes, very much so. Yes, we cannot keep it to ourselves. We must help others and share with others. Um, I'd like to pass those out, please. Um, Now, this is not exclusive. This is my personal way of, of um, thinking about church. But I want to talk about it because it seems to incorporate many of the things that were said here. Just one other thought is um, with agreeing with all that's been said. Um, it's what we all personally, as we all work together and worship together, enriches um, our faith for each other and for ourselves. Amen. Which keeps the church, you know, growing and keeps the of the Lord um, forever, um, forever out there for, from our teachings, just the way we all worship together. Very good. Very good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank all of you. Um, Again, this is my personal feelings, but it seems to incorporate a lot of the words that I've heard many of you say. The church, as I believe it, to me, is the wellspring of faith. This is we recognizing the church as the extension of Christ himself. 
Paul tells us in some of his letters, particularly Corinthians, that we are the hands and the feet, the body, the voice, the eyes, the mouth of Christ here on earth and must help others to see it the same way. Not necessarily the same way that we believe, but in general, the teachings of Christ. It is the seat of authority, the apostolic, by apostolic succession. Uh, meaning that it is the same church that Jesus Christ gave to mankind through the apostles. And it is the teacher of divine truth. You often hear the word magisterium. That is exactly what the church is. Many people confuse the word magisterium with hierarchy. Magisterium is the responsible, is the authority and the responsibility of the church to teach. And that is why the church has the authority of telling mankind in general, of telling all people, you cannot do such and such because... And then they go on with explaining why. You will often hear people say, well, I don't think the church can tell me what to do. Well, the church has every right in the matters of faith and morals to do exactly that. And yet, we've seen many of our politicians um, totally ignore that uh, for their own purposes. The church is also the hand of a loving God. When we try our best to live according to the teachings of Christ and we ask for God's help, it will be there. Not always in the way we might recognize or the way we would want. But God's loving hand is there. And if our faith is strong enough, we will believe and see it there. The church is the avenger of social evils. That One of them, of course, is against abortion, against poverty. It is often said, and I've read it in several different places, that there would be enough food for every person on earth if it wasn't for the greed of a few holding it back from those who are most in need of it. And finally, it is the vehicle of reconciliation. For those who have been in serious sin. They need not fret or feel that God will abandon them because the way to reconcile is open to them. But obviously, it's not always easy. And many people fail uh, to step up to it. 
But if you look at the important words in each of these statements, they spell out Father. And that's the way we can look at the church is our Father. Father, a loving Father who loves us beyond all our understanding. And that is what church is to me. Any questions? Yes? I'm sorry, sorry, Jose, I can't hear you. Yes. I, I don't know. I can't answer that question. Um, but Allah, of course, to them is another title or word for God. Um, to my way of thinking, their refusal to call God their father stems from the original reason of humility that it would make us their God's son. But in a way, that's what we are. We are God's children. And that's why I call this father, because we are God's children. He loves us just as much as you love your children, for those of you who are parents. In spite of what your children may have done throughout the years, uh, you still love them. You never... Stop loving your children. And that's the way God looks at us. I like it all. <laughs> I think Gene's got a point. Let me take all of what you suggested this morning and come up with something. Okay. Alright, well, that might be the way to do it. I've got a little bit of time between now and the middle of September, so I'll, uh, I'll send you a letter in the mail. Alright, let's end with a prayer. Lord, we thank you for allowing us this time to discuss the Acts of the Apostles as well as other portions of Scripture. We thank you for the many graces and blessings that you have shed upon us through opening our minds and our hearts. Help us to continue to open our mind and our heart that we might understand our role in your plan of salvation, particularly as it is worked out through the church. So give us the strength and the courage then to set aside all of our own desires and to open ourselves to what you and your Holy Spirit have in mind for us. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.